Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to, going to be looking at Psalm 19. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 19. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. And while you're finding that, I want to start with an idea. And the idea is this. Deep down, when we see something with a design, we assume a designer. Deep down, when we see something with a design, we assume a designer. So in the 1997 movie Contact, Jodie Foster plays Dr. Ellie Arroway. And Dr. Arroway is listening to space. And she's listening in space because she's trying to hear a sign that there is extraterrestrial life out there. And then at one point, they begin to hear a very powerful signal coming from the nearby Vega system. And it's being communicated in a pulsating sound that is ordered on prime numbers. And because the whole world hears this signal, they assume that that signal has a sender. They assume that the design has a designer. In the 2016 movie Arrival, Amy Adams plays a linguist, Louise Banks. And all of a sudden, there are 12 spaceships that arrive around the planet. And these spaceships are defying gravity. They're hovering about 100 feet off of the ground. They're the size of a skyscraper, but it's this black oval. And so the whole world assumes that the spaceships have a sender that the design has a designer. And this is something that you intuit in your own life, right? If you see an amazing work of art, you assume that there's an artist. If you see a beautiful building, you assume that there's an architect. If you hear a marvelous piece of music, you assume that there's a composer, that there's a songwriter. And if you see a great movie, you assume that there's a director. Why? Because when you see that artistry, on display, right? When you see the intention and the creativity and the beauty and the design, you assume that there's a designer because deep down, when we see something with a design, we assume that there's a designer. But we also live in a demystified world. Ever since the Enlightenment, we think that we can explain everything, and even worse, we have to have an explanation for everything. And then, since the advent of Google, those explanations, they're just a click away. Some of you remember the world before Google, BG, as Tim Hawkins likes to call it, uh, where when you didn't know something, you just continued not knowing it. And, and then you asked somebody else, and they didn't know it, and then you didn't know it together, right? And the Enlightenment and Google have many benefits, but there's this one downside. We think we have everything figured out. We're no longer amazed. We're no longer filled with wonder. There's no room for mystery. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. God's world and God's word are whispering always whispering, and they're whispers of wonder. God's world and God's word are whispering, always whispering, and they're whispers of wonder. We're going to look at the passage this morning under three headings. In verses 1 through 6, we'll see the wonder in God's world. 
And in verses 7 through 11, we'll see the wonder in God's word. And then in verses 12 through 14, we'll see the wonder in our way. The wonder in God's world, the wonder in God's word, and the wonder in our way. Would you look with me at Psalm 19, starting at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More desired are they, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent, from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence this morning, there are some who are filled to the brim with joy, and there are others for whom this week has been weary. Some are struggling with isolation. Others are battling temptation. As we come to your word this morning, I pray that in this moment you would give us an opportunity to fix our hearts on the heavens declaring your glory in such a way that we would be filled with wonder. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and in the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider the wonder in God's world. The wonder in God's world. In verses 1 through 4, creation is speaking. Look at verse 1. The heavens, what? Declare. The sky above proclaims. And then verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
But creation is speaking, and it's speaking without words. Look at verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. And yet without words, creation still has a voice. Verse 3 continues, whose voice is not heard. It's speechless, but it speaks. It's wordless, but it has a voice. One commentator uh, explains it this way. There is no speech, no words, no voice that is heard. Yet, their voice goes out into the whole world. It is all very mysterious and marvelous. The visible becomes vocal. Seeing is experienced as hearing. Seeing is experienced as hearing. And then he says, the imagination is in the midst of an unending concert sung by the universe to the glory of God. It has a voice. And look how far this voice reaches. Verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth. I think this is a geographic reference, right? This is Their voice goes out to all places. And then their words, to the end of the world. I think this is a chronological reference. To all times, right? So this voice goes out to all places and all times. In other words, this voice is heard everywhere, by everyone, and at all times. Nothing escapes this voice. And if this voice were a song, and some would say it is, then this would be an unending song. Are you familiar with the song that never ends? It's a bit of an earworm. This is the song that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friend. Some people started thinking, singing it, not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing it forever just because. This is the song, right? And you go right back into it, right? It's an unending song, and this voice is an unending voice. It just goes on and on, my friend. This voice is heard everywhere by everyone at all times. And what is this ubiquitous, unending voice saying? Creation in verse 1 is declaring the glory of God. It's proclaiming his handiwork. Paul is making the majesty and sovereignty of God known to everyone, right? Paul says it this way in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Romans 1 verse 20. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. When? Ever since the beginning, of, ever since the creation of the world. And where? In the things that have been made. So they, all mankind, are without excuse. And why are they without excuse? Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now there, in in Psalm 19 verse 1, David is taking us back to the very beginning. He's taking us back to creation. He's taking us back to Genesis 1 verse 1. Do you remember how the Bible opens? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same word there that's used in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
And by the way, this word heaven isn't the place where God dwells. This is heavens. It can also be translated sky, right? So God is creating the heavens and the earth. He's creating everything that we see. And then in Psalm 19.1, that word sky above is a very unusual word in our text. Uh, it's in Hebrew, it's rakia. It's only used 17 times in the Old Testament, and it's used nine of those 17 times back in Genesis 1. If I can get the first slide there, Nate. It's translated expanse, expanse. And God said, this is Genesis 1, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And then verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. In verse 8, God called the expanse, that is the sky above, he called it heaven. And then it's used four more times in Genesis chapter 1. And then this word, sky above, expanse, rakia, doesn't appear again until Psalm 19. Psalm 19 and verse 1. You see, David is taking us back to creation. Well, how do the heavens and the sky above declare the glory of God? How does creation show God's eternal power? and divine nature. Creation is designed to fill us with wonder. And yet we don't wonder so often. But creation is designed to fill us with wonder. Have you ever considered the size of the stars? If I can get that next slide there, Nate. The size of the stars. So Um, In some iterations of this, you'll be introduced to, like, this is Earth, and they'll put that moniker, you are here, just in case you were wondering where you were in the universe. You you are here, um, and this is the size of the Earth. Now, if a commercial plane uh, goes 600 miles an hour, and you were to fly around the circumference of the Earth in that plane at 600 miles an hour, it would take you 41 and a half hours to go around the Earth. Okay, so here's the earth. Now the earth gets really small right here. And then this is the earth compared to Jupiter, right? And then Jupiter gets really small right here. And then this is our sun. Now, if it takes 41 and a half hours in that commercial plane to fly around the earth, how long do you think it takes to fly around the sun? It takes, a, you know, provided that your plane doesn't burn up because you're too close to you got a well-insulated aircraft, right? It would take 189 days to fly around the sun, okay? Now, here, here's the sun compared to Cirrus, and then Cirrus gets really small, and here's Cirrus compared to Aldebaran. Now, that's not Alderaan, you Star Wars fans. This is Alderbaran. Now, Aldebaran gets really small down to here, and this is Aldebaran compared to Betelgeuse. And Betelgeuse gets a little small right here, and then here's Betelgeuse compared to V.Y. Canis Majoris. V.Y. Canis Majoris is the largest known star in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, can I get that next slide? If it takes 189 days in that airplane to fly around the sun, Right? And here's the sun, by the way. This is the surface of V.Y. Canis Majoris. If you take that down here, you'll see there's the sun. It's just this itty-bitty little speck. And this is the Earth's orbit, 
right? BYK Kinesmajaris got a little smushed here in this slide. But um, th this is the Earth's orbit, right? So if it takes 189 days to fly around the sun, do you know how long it would take to fly around VY Canis Majoris? Not a year, not 10 years, not 100 years, not 500 years, not 1,000 years. It would take 1,100 years to fly around VY Canis Majoris, okay? And yet, V.Y. Canis Majoris is just one star in the Milky Way galaxy. Can I get that next slide? Uh, V.Y. Canis Majoris is right here. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea where it is. <coughs> um, scholars estimate that there are between 150 and 250 billion stars in the, in the Milky Way galaxy. Are you beginning to feel a little small at this point? And then there are 10 billion galaxies in our known universe. Can I get that next slide? There are 10 billion galaxies in our known universe. So let's assume that each galaxy is a little bit smaller than the Milky Way. Let's say that each galaxy averages 100 billion stars, right? That would mean that we would have one billion trillion stars in the universe. Now, some of you think I'm just making up a number. I'm like, like one billion trillion? No, it's a one with 21 zeros after it. There are one billion trillion stars in the universe. You see how vast the universe is? Can you hear creation wondering, whispering? They're whispers of wonder. And if, when you see a work of art, you assume an artist, and when you see a beautiful building, you assume an architect, and when you hear marvelous music, you assume a composer, and when you see a great movie, you assume a director, when you see this, when you see a creation of this magnitude, of this vastness, it leads you to assume that there's a creator. You see, the heavens and the sky above are declaring the glory of God. And creation is showing God's eternal power and divine nature. But we live in an increasingly agnostic age. Unbelief is on the rise. Our culture is becoming more and more secular. In fact, um, yet when you think about that, unbelief is on the rise... A 2017 poll from Pew Research Center reports that still 9 out of 10 Americans still believe in a God of some sort. They still believe in a higher power. Why is that? Unbelief is on the rise. Why? Because they can hear that voice, that unending voice, and it's whispering. They can hear the whispers of wonder. And it's not just the heavens and the sky above that declare God's glory. This is a daily tale. It's a story that's retold and reimagined over and over again as the earth rotates on its axis. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You see, as day turns into night and night turns back into day, 
each time it's a rehearsal of the story. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it's saying the world began, and one day the world will end. And time marches on, and it's declaring the glory of God. One commentator says that these constructions, day after day and night after night, emphasize the continuity of revelation as one day passes the message of divine glory to the next day. And each night receives its abiding knowledge from those preceding, representing an unbroken chain of communication going back to creation. You see, it's all whispers and echoes of the glory of God. And the protagonist in this daily tale is the sun. The sun. Look at verse 5. The sun is personified in verse 5. He's like a bridegroom or a mighty warrior, and each day he runs his course with joy. Day after day he runs, steady, consistent, unchanging. He rises in one end of the heavens and runs his circuit to the end. He leaves his tent in the morning and returns to it at night. And in some cultures, in Egypt and Mesopotamia and other ancient Near Eastern cultures, this task was so heroic that it had to be done by a god. And so the sun was deified. In Egypt, that sun god was named Ra. In Mesopotamia, that sun god was named Shamash. And Ra and Shamash were the upholder of justice and righteousness. They gave the law. But in the Old Testament, the sun, Shemesh in Hebrew, is just another part of creation. He's just the work of God's hands. He's deferring all glory to the Creator. All worship is given to the Creator alone. But as the sun runs its circuit every day, notice what's said at the end of verse 6. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Day by day, the sun is searching and exposing and uncovering. Nothing can hide. And it's not talking about light here. It's talking about heat. And, and you're experiencing Mississippi in the summer. Sometimes you can get out of the, the direct sunlight, right, by getting into the shade. But you can never escape that Mississippi heat unless you come inside of the air conditioning, right? That, that heat is everywhere. And that's what's being said here, right? Nothing is hidden from its heat. And in David's mind, that's a natural transition, into God's word. So now we have the wonder in God's word, verses 7 through 11. Now, when, when you start the passage, the word, the name for God is the word El, which is very appropriate because that's our, the name of our pastor, and I can't think of anyone who reflects God better than Pastor El. Um, and so the name for God is El, it just appears in verse 1, God, El. It's a generic a general term for God, usually used of God as the creator. But now when you get to, to verse 7, 7 through 14, the name of God shifts. And you'll see that there at the beginning of verse 7. It's the law of the Lord. 
And that word Lord in the Hebrew is Yahweh. And this is the covenant name of God. This is the name that God gives to his people in Exodus chapter 3. It's a scrunched down, condensed version of the promise that God will be with his people. It's God's covenant name that he gives to his people. And some would say, oh, see, we've got two different names for God. So we have two different poems that got smushed together, right? But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think David has a purpose. David is trying to show in verses 1 through 6 that sometimes we perceive God generally. We perceive him generically. We perceive him uh, as creator. But in verses 7 through 14, when he's talking about God's word, we perceive him as Yahweh, right? Because we are given God's covenant name to call upon him for salvation In his covenant word. And then notice in verse 7, David starts by talking about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. And sometimes, if we read this just as law, you might assume that David is some sort of like super intense hyper legalist. And legalists can be a little hard to like because they're always trying to catch you breaking uh, the law. They're looking over your shoulder. And then God just becomes a policeman in the sky waiting for you to mess up. But law here is the English translation of the Hebrew word Torah. And Torah is a very specific designation. Torah is referring to the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah, right? This is David's Bible. This is all the Bible that David had. And the Torah certainly contains commandments, verse 8, right? It contains the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And the Torah actually contains 613 commands altogether. But that's not all that God's Word is. God's Word also includes, verse 7, The testimony of the Lord and the precepts of the Lord, verse 8. And then verse 9, the rules or judgments of the Lord. You see, God's word is fundamentally a story saturated by grace. God is always making a way to forgive his sinful people. What do I mean by that? Well, think about just the Torah here. And you go back to where God gives his commands in Exodus chapter 20. Right? He gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And his voice thunders from heaven. And there's flashes of lightning. And you have God's holy word given. And then in Exodus 21 through 23, Moses expounds those Ten Commands and gives his people the book of the law. This is how you should live. And then in Exodus chapter 24... The people make a covenant ratification ceremony where they're saying, hey, everything that you've just told us to do, yes, we're going to do that. And then blood is shed to commemorate uh, this commitment. And then in Exodus 25 through 31, God gives his people instructions to build the tabernacle. And then you get to Exodus chapter 32, and you know what happens? God's people begin to worship a golden calf. They gather gold, and Aaron makes this golden calf, and the people worship. And so they're going back, and they're breaking the first two commandments, right? You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make any images. And God's people are sinful. They're breaking God's commands. 
And then in Exodus 35 through 40, God's people build that tabernacle just as God told them to. And at the end of Exodus 40, verses 34 through 40, God's glory comes and fills the tabernacle. It's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that represents a huge problem. Why? Because you have a holy God who gave his commands and he's living in the midst of a sinful people. And do you know what the answer to that problem is? It's the book of Leviticus. You see, in Leviticus, in Leviticus 1 through 7, God gives uh, sacrifices, right? Because, uh, because the wages of sin is death. And then in Leviticus 8 through 10, he gives priests because we need a mediator. And then in, verse, in chapters 11 through 15, he gives a cleanliness code. This is how you can be separate from the other people. And then in Leviticus 16, he gives a day of atonement. He says, this is how you are to atone for all of the sins of the people. And then in Leviticus 17 through 27, he gives the holiness code. He says, be holy because I am holy. This story in the Torah is the story of God relentlessly pursuing his people. David sees this story as God making a way to forgive his sinful people. This is a story that's saturated by grace. And when you see God's word like that, when you realize that God's word is, look at verses 7 through 9, perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, then it's going to produce, verse 9, the fear of the Lord. There's going to be awe and reverence and wonder. And when that's your relationship to God's word, then it's going to bring wisdom and life to the soul and joy to the heart and light to the eyes. God's word, verse 9, endures forever. It goes on and on, my friend. And in all aspects, in all facets, it is altogether righteous. C.S. Lewis says, This is the language of a man ravished by moral beauty. David finds God's word delicious, exhilarating, and full of wonder. Why? Because he sees his God in there. He sees God's glory. He sees God's eternal power and divine nature. He sees God's beauty, and it takes his breath away. Think about God's word as we have it today in its final form in your Bible. You have 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years in three different languages, and it's all saying the same thing. It's whispering of wonder. And when you see God's word like this, our response is to desire it. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey. That's the wonder of God's word. And when you see that wonder, and it's the wonder of a child, right? When you see that wonder in both God's word and God's world, you, begin, you can begin to see why Lewis would say about Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter. 
and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. You see the wonder in God's world, and then you see the wonder in God's word, and then you see, thirdly, the wonder in our way. Verses 12 through 14. So we're supposed to desire God's word like gold. We're supposed to desire God's word like honey. But our experience of God's word can sometimes be a little bit more like a root canal. right? Instead of considering it like gold, we think of it like, you know, as festus. Or instead of thinking about it like honey, desiring it like honey, we think about it like Lydia's lunchbox. So um, I think it was two summers ago... Um, you know, our girls finished up school and they brought all their stuff home uh, and they, they put it neatly in their cubbies. And uh, about, uh, about four weeks into summer, we began to battle fruit flies, right? And so, you know, we, would, we, would, we, we went over and searched all the fruit in the baskets and turned it over, threw away anything that was just even slightly rotten. Then you put out those traps, right, where is it vinegar that you cover with saran wrap and poke holes in it. And we were fighting, right? And it, this fight just went on. It went on for four weeks. It went on for six weeks. It went on another eight weeks. And then it was time for the girls to go back to school. <clears throat> Now, if she had McDonald's fries in the lunchbox, everything would have been fine because McDonald's fries don't deteriorate. But she had a piece of fruit in her lunchbox. And so you open, you unzip this lunchbox, and fruit flies just went everywhere, right? It was completely repulsive. And sometimes, we threw that lunchbox away, by the way. So, sometimes, we weren't we were going to like clean it out. And, you, you can make this work. Sometimes, that's the way we find God's word. We're supposed to find it beautiful, but instead we find it repulsive. Why? Because, like the sun, God's word is always searching. It's always exposing. It's always uncovering. It's searching your heart. It's exposing your sin. It's uncovering your idols. And we want to hide. We want to push it away. Why? Because we want to be good enough. We want to measure up. We want to do it on our own. But the very starting point of the gospel is admitting that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, that we can't do it on our own. And once you've admitted that, then you'll find God's word beautiful. Then you'll find God's word more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Why? Because you will have found yourself in the middle of that story saturated by grace. And how did you get in the middle of that story saturated by grace? In the beginning, do you remember how God created the world? He created all things out of nothing by the word of his power. God's word was so vast and so powerful that in the speaking of it, God created the one billion trillion stars in the universe. He created them by the word of his power. But here's the interesting thing. God's word, the Bible, says that this word in Genesis 1 is a person. In John 1, John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, 
all things were created through him. That's every molecule in the universe. That's the ends of your eyelashes. And that's one billion trillion stars. And then the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Can you picture that? How did that happen, right? Someone more vast, more powerful than one billion trillion stars comes in human flesh. How could that be? How could God become a man? It's whispers of wonder. And why did he do it? Did you notice it in verse 11? It says, in keeping them, there is great reward. But we know that we can't keep all of God's commands. But Jesus did. He kept all the commands and he paid, for, he paid the penalty for all the commands that you've broken. He earned that reward and he gave it to you so that you can be, verse 13, blameless and innocent of great transgression. And when you see that someone so vast came in human flesh and earned the reward and gave it to you, then more and more our way, it should be a way of wonder. More and more we'll live in a world filled with awe. More and more God's word will be life to the soul and joy to the heart and light to the eyes. And our prayer will more and more be, let the, meditation, let, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, God's world and God's word are whispering to us, always whispering, and they're whispers of wonder. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you give our hearts space that we might be able to meditate on what it means that you are the God of all creation, and yet you sent your Son through whom all things were made to come and to be in human flesh that he might earn our reward. And Father, as we meditate on that fact, I pray that you would fill our hearts more and more uh, with wonder, with joy, and that that would be an anchor in all of the circumstances of our life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.